Hello and welcome to the re, to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for March 8th and that's a Wednesday uh, and this is Peter Welch um, narrating the program for you on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. All right, let's take a look at uh, what's going on here. All right, we've got Turn Lane, an improvement, not a fix. US 20 intersection at Thunder Hills Road is receiving attention, but not an overhaul. In Piesa, Iowa, area officials plan to lengthen a turning lane on US 20 just east of Piesta to begin addressing an intersection where local officials say more work is needed. Iowa Department of Transportation District Engineer Anthony Bardgett, who previously served as the county engineer for Dubuque and Delaware counties, told the Dubuque County Board of Supervisors this week that the state intends to double the length of the westbound turn lane on US-20 leading to Thunder Hills Road. Work on the project is expected to take place during this year's construction season. Drivers over the years have expressed concerns about the safety of that intersection, though state officials have said a larger overhaul is not imminent. Officials from the city of Piosta, as well as Bardgett, acknowledge that the latest project is not the solution, but that it is a step in the right direction. Piosta Mayor Russ Bafab called the project an improvement, not a fix. It will help anyone turning off to 20 and to Thunder Hills the ability to get off the highway and not be approaching at that high speed, he said. And that's at least a preliminary positive. There is something more that needs to be done, which I know is on the DOT's radar. Bargett told the Board of Supervisors that the DOT's project would lengthen the current turning lane from 300 feet to 600 feet. The result would be uh, pretty similar to what you'll see at Cox Springs Road now, he said. That allows for a better sight distance looking to the east as traffic is trying to cross the median from Thunder Hills Road. Dubuque County Engineer Russell Weber said that the cost of the $300,000 project would be split between the county and the state, with the county's portion coming from the farm to market fund, which already is budgeted for the second secondary roads department in the current fiscal year. All right. Let's see what else we've got here. Um, healthcare snapshot frames equity concerns. Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque is compiling data about access to services. Residents at the margins of Dubuque's public health system reported the most pressing concerns in a recent report from Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. Lack of access to mental health services, rising food insecurity, and access to specialty care led among issues identified by the Foundation's Health and Wellness Equity Profile Snapshot, as well as by area experts. The snapshots eventually will comprise an equity profile planned for completion this year. Many residents reported positive health care experiences, with 76% of the respondents to a uh, survey 
conducted by the foundation reporting that they receive quality health care from their providers. At the same time, though, most of the 36 respondents to the foundation's survey disagreed that mental health services were easy to access or to access, I should say, with respond, respondents citing long wait lists for care and high co-pays. Data from Iowa Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System found that 38% of Dubuque residents reported experiencing poor brain health on at least one day during the 30-day period in 2021. Staffing number one challenge for Iowa's nursing home. Leading Iowa reports the trend is unsustainable. A recent statewide report cites that staffing challenges as a major hurdle for Iowa nursing homes to continue providing quality care. And local nursing home administrators agreed with that assessment. Leading Age Iowa, an organization of nonprofit aging services providers, recently published a 2023 situation report on the challenges faced by nursing homes across the state, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. These trends are unsustainable, the report reads, at a time when Iowa's aging services should be growing to meet the emerging needs of our state's aging population, we're losing ground. The report states that at least 23 nursing homes across the state have announced their closure since the start of 2022, including six since the beginning of this year. These closures come at a time when Iowa's population of those age 85 and older is expected to grow by over 90 percent by 2040, the report goes on to say. Castridge Care Center in Mwakita, Iowa, were among the six closures announced earlier this year. The, the, the center housed 58 residents at the time the closure was announced, and the center was required to stay open for at least 60 days for residents to move. Staff at Crestage Care Center said that they could not comment for this story. However, other area nursing home administrators cited similar concerns to those detailed in the Leading Edge Iowa report. The biggest challenge is the workforce, how we get people into the field, how we recruit and retain the workers, said Peg Stockel, administrator at Stonehill Communities in Dubuque. There's going to be more older adults and there's going to be less younger people to meet that need. And I think we need a very focused effort on getting people into the field. The Leading Age Iowa report states that the aging services workforce has shrunk 11% since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and 83% of the aging service providers in Iowa are relying on more expensive temporary agency staff to fill the gap. Kim Harkey, administrator at Luther Manor Communities, which has locations in Dubuque and Ashbury, said that 16 to 20 percent of the hours worked at Luther Manor are done now by agency staffing. There was a trickle for workforce challenges prior to COVID-19, but COVID really did hit hard, she said. People are burnt out, don't have the workforce. You see it even in other businesses, but it's not the easiest work to help elders. It is a tough job, and COVID did not help it.
Okay. Let's see what else we got here going on here. Um, we are going to now turn the page to, to the Dubuque and Tri-State area of the paper. News in brief, Bellevue voters approved $13.1 million bond measure for a new elementary school in Bellevue. Bellevue Community School District votes on Tuesday approved a $13.1 million bond measure to help fund construction of a new elementary school. A total of 1,142 people, or 65.78% of the votes, cast Voted in favor of the bond measure, while 594, or 34.22, voted against it. The measure needed a 60% approval rate to pass. The bond will fund construction of a new facility on the Bellevue Middle and High School campus. The space initially will house 3rd through 5th grades, with pre-K through 2nd grades remaining at the current school. Costs not covered by the bond are proposed to be funded by the district's physical plant and equipment levy and the state one-cent sales tax. With the passage of the bond, the district's portion of property taxes will increase by $2.70 per $1,000 of taxable value, meaning that the owner of a $100,000 residential property would see an annual increase of $133.06, according to district officials. Grammy Award-winning country artist to perform at Delaware County Fair. In Manchester, Iowa, a Grammy Award-winning country artist will, can, will headline the Delaware County Fair this summer. Carly Pierce will perform Friday on the 14th of July with Aaron Watson in support, according to an online announcement. Tickets will be available starting at 9 a.m. Saturday on the 11th of March at uh, Delaware uh, companyfair.com. So let me spell that. It's Delaware. It's, it's Delaware. D e l a w a r e c o f a i r dot com. A three-time Country Music Association Award winner, Pierce topped the country airplay charts with singles like "Every Little Thing," "I Hope You're Happy Now," and "Never Wanted to Be That Girl." A collaboration with Ashley McBride that won the 2023 Grammy for Best Country Duo Group Performance. Country music Aaron Watson is known for his chop-topping album, The Underdog, and the hit single, Out of Style. Authorities, two injured in rollover crash on US-20 near Galena, Illinois. Authorities said that two people were injured in a one-vehicle one rollover crash Monday that closed U.S. 20 for several hours near Galena. Maria G. Amquita Rodriguez, age 34, of Addison, Illinois, was transported to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center, and a juvenile passenger was transported initially to Midwest Medical Center and then to UW Health University of Wisconsin Hospitals and clinics for treatment of their injuries, according to the Joe Davis County Sheriff's Departments. Press release states that that Amaquita Rodriguez was driving east on US-20, just west of Illinois, 84th, in rural Galena around 3.47 p.m. when she lost control of her vehicle and it began to skid. Rodriguez then crossed into the median before the vehicle rolled multiple times. Authorities closed the highway after the crash, reopening it by 8 p.m. according to the press release. Okay, 
Let's take a look here now on the same page. East Dubuque City Manager reverses course on retirement announcement. Herrig, who previously said he would step down on the 30th of June, now says that he plans to serve at least two more years. In East Dubuque, East Dubuque City Manager will no longer retire this year. After previously announcing his plans to step away from the job, Loris Herrig, who has served in the role for just over four years, told city council members in November that he would retire on the 30th of June, citing personal attacks and a growing political movement focused on firing him. At this week's council meeting, however, Herrig announced his intention to remain in the role, stating that the citizens, co-workers, and community leaders had asked him to reconsider and that he wanted to fulfill his obligation to the city. We have so many projects going on, and at the end of the day, I just I couldn't see myself walking away and leaving all that work for someone else to deal with, Herrick said. When reaching by the tele, reached by the Telegraph Herald on Tuesday, he added that in April of 2022, city council members approved a three-year contract for him. He had worked without a contract since assuming his role in 2018, but sought one last year following public calls for his resignation. I made the commitment to the council that I would serve out those remaining two years, he said, noting that he plans to serve until at least April 2025, but does not yet know if he will retire at that point. When first announcing his decision to retire, Herrick cited repeated personnel attacks from a specific group of city residents, whom he acknowledged this week are still present in the community. However, he said he has heard from many residents urging him not to retire and feels that he will just have to put up with continued opposition from the group of residents as it goes along with the job. It's bigger than me. It's about the city, he said. In talking to our department heads and our staff, there's a lot left to do. And there was some concern that some of the projects I've started wouldn't get finished if I walked away. And I didn't want to see that happen. Grant County residents brainstorm emergency response strategies. In Dickeyville, Wisconsin, as Misty Molzov led a small group through a hazardous response exercise in Dickeyville on Tuesday, she tried to get them to think about those in the community who might need the most help. If you think that if something bad happens in your community, who's taking care of the kids? Prompted Molzoff, local government services specialist for Southwestern Wisconsin Regional Planning Commission. What might they need? The group mulled over it, throwing out ideas like finding ways to teach kids where to go in an emergency or working to bolster phone service in the area to make sure the communication could still occur in an emergency. Each response got added to a large sheet of paper listing potentially vulnerable communities, including children, as well as non-English-speaking individuals and tourists. The exercise was part of a hazard mitigation meeting meant to garner feedback from citizens in Grant County about the county's emergency and disaster management. Around 30 attendees walked through the meeting stations Tuesday dedicated to Topics like hazardous, hazardous identification, vulnerable populations, and climate change. It was the last of four 
such meetings country or uh, county-wise, and the input will be used by Southwestern Wisconsin Regional Planning Commission and the Grant County Hazard Mitigation Planning Team to create the 2023 Grant County Hazard Mitigation Plan, which will be completed later this year. We did this five years ago uh, for the 2018 plan, and this is kind of the updated version, said Community Resiliency Planner Ellen Tyler. There were strategies for the whole county, but there are also sections in the plan for every municipality. When attendees arrived, they were given stickers to place on a list next to the top potential hazards they saw in Grant County. Whether events like flooding and tornadoes swiftly racked up votes, while a few people chose to place their stickers next to the cyber attacks or climate change. As we do um, normally on, on Wednesdays, we get to the opinion page of the Telegraph Herald, um, and we've got two of them. I'm going to read one of them. This one is by Tom Harkin, who is a, uh, sen- a retired senator, and this, is, this column is called Other View, and it's titled Reimagining Regional Food and Health Systems in Post-Pandemic World. Everyone should be able to find and afford nutritious food to feed their families. But the COVID-19 pandemic made that nearly impossible for thousands of Americans. The pandemic caused widespread supply chain issues that disrupted our ability to find healthy foods and drove up prices. That, on top of so many Americans losing their jobs and incomes had a major impact on our access to foods that make a balanced diet. There was a clear need for communities to come together and help those disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And they did. From the pandemic, we've seen the rise of so many new approaches to address the relationship between food and health. These new approaches included the growth of food system coalitions and councils working to shape, advise, and implement food policy. We also saw the emergence of grassroots leaders and organizations focused on increasing opportunities and reducing barriers to healthy outcomes at the regional level. The Argus Farm Stop in Ann Arbor, Michigan, found a way to expand its very it's, it's every day, year-round farmer's market to include online sales during the pandemic. Regular customers who couldn't go to the grocery store were able to order f- uh, fresh local produce and goods online. Here in Iowa, the Waukee Community School District established its farm-to-school program. The program's goal is to increase access to local and culturally diverse foods in schools. To meet that goal, the district has added edible gardens, provided nutrition education to students, highlighting new uh, produce in student meals through a harvest of the month program. These are just a few of the new approaches to addressing food and nutrition in our communities. We believe that these programs have the ability to go improve health and lower health care costs, reduce disparities, improve clinical practices, increase economic vitality, and support 
sustainable food systems. The upcoming Harkins on Wellness Symposium will showcase nearly a dozen organizations that are reimagining food and health systems in their communities. On the 13th of April, the Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement will gather experts for a discussion on how the pandemic-forced organizations and communities to create innovative wellness and nutrition initiatives and how we can make health and food systems more sustainable. Learn more and register at harkininstitute.org. And again, this was written by retired Senator Tom Harkin, who represented uh, Iowa in Congress for 40 years. All right, so now we've read our uh, opinion page. Let's now take a look at some other news in the uh, Galena area. First, we've got Galena Council candidates discuss key issues at forum in Galena, Illinois, Galena City Council candidates discuss topics from water source management to sidewalk repair at a forum this week. The forum, sponsored by League of Women Voters of Joe Davis County, featured candidates who will be on the ballot in the April 4th election. In the Galena Council race, incumbent Mark McCoy faces challenger Cynthia Tigmeyer for the Ward 1 seat. Uh, incumbent Robert Hahn faces challenger Cynthia, Cynthia Johnson for the Ward 4 seat. And incumbent Jerry Westmere faces challenge, challenger Catherine Buck West for an at-large seat. All terms are for four years. Okay, let's see. What else do we have here? We've got several Dubuque Leaders, organizations are honored for community impact. Several local leaders and organizations were recognized for their impact on Community Tuesday during the annual 365 Inc. Impact Awards at Mississippi Moon Bar in the Diamond Joe Casino in Dubuque, marking its 14th year. The event presented by 365 Inc. Magazine and sponsored by Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque and Premier Bank, made its live return after a two-year hiatus from in-person recognition due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And this year's recipients were Lisa Bauer of Bauer RV Upholstery for turning a lost job into a thriving business for her and her former co-workers. A press release states, Dr. Tim King and Dr. Ed Alt for their work to help families afford hearing assistance for their children. The St. Mark's Iceman, who assists with St. Mark Youth Enrichment's annual Ice Golf Classic fundraiser. Carla Anderson, a member of the City of Dubuque Equity and Human Rights Commission for her efforts to highlight equity and inclusion locally. Dubuque's riverboat traffic for its contributions to local tourism. John O'Connor for his leadership in making the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque a success, the release states. Megan Gloss, Telegraph Herald's feature editor for her championship of the arts. Mary Moody and Rick Milm of Hope House and Dubuque Rescue Mission for their devotion to helping those in need. NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, Dubuque, for its efforts to provide education, support, and advocacy for brain health 
causes. Janet Walker, who helps distribute more than 5,000 books each year through the Little Free Libraries. Bryce Parks, publisher of 3065 Inc., also was I should say 365 Inc., excuse me, also was surprised with an Impact Award of the Decade for his work with the magazine and coordinating the Dubuque Toys for Tots campaign. A bi-weekly entertainment publication distributed throughout the tri-states, 365 Inc. aims to help connect people to relationships, opportunities, and the best possible living experiences in our community. The release states, the 365 Inc. Impact Awards honor those who choose to make the effort to impact the community in the spirit of our mission. All right, let's see. News and brief here. City of Dubuque encouraging residents to select trash cart options. City of Dubuque officials are encouraging residents who need waste carts with capabilities or capacities, excuse me, capacities over the standard 35 gallons to select from among three other size options. Dubuque's trash collection is switching to tipper carts to improve efficiency in curbside collections and increase safety for staff, according to a press release. Citywide deployment of 35-gallon carts to residents who do not already have a city-issued tipper cart is expected to begin in April and be completed by the fall. Residents who wish to have larger sizes may choose a 48-gallon, 64-gallon, and 96-gallon options. Residents who request a cart larger than 35 gallons will receive it after July 1st when supplies become available and they can continue to use their current trash can until the new cart is delivered. You can visit cityofdubuque.org forward slash trash collection, or you can also call 563-589-4250 for more information or to request a larger cart. All right, what else is happening here? How about applications available for neighborhood support grants in Dubuque? Applications are available for grants to support projects in Dubuque neighborhoods. Application materials for the City of Dubuque's Neighborhood Support Grant Program are available online at cityofdubuque.org forward slash neighborhoods, according to a press release. The release states that the grants of up to $750 are available to neighborhood associations and other nonprofits for projects that enhance the livability and strengthen neighborhood pride. Previous uses for grants included funds for bike racks, a neighborhood newsletter, beautification efforts, youth and family programs, park improvements, and community gardens. Applications will be accepted throughout the year and be reviewed on the first of every month. For more information, you can contact Anderson Saincy, that's S-A-I-N-C-I, Saincy, at 563-589-4326, or you can go to A-S-A-I-N-C-I at cityofdubuque.org for more information. All right. Okay. Every week at this time, uh, Michael Royzen uh, does an article on health. And his article this week is salts, a salt 
on your body's immune system. Ocean water is between 33 and 37% salt. The human body contains a variety of salts, including plain old table salt, amounting to about 200 grams of sodium chloride in a 100-pound person. You want to keep it at that level because it's important for nerve impulse transmission and the quality of your blood. Unfortunately, most Americans take in way too much salt from processed and restaurant foods. From age two on, consumption hits around 3,400 milligrams a day. If folks 14 and older took in the recommended amount of 2,300 milligrams daily, it would reduce their risk of heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, and stomach cancers significantly. And the benefits don't stop there. A new study in cell metabolism shows that execs salt Excuse me, I should say that excess salt intake, rather, damages the immune system regulatory T-cells, which also stands for TREGS, T-R-E-G-S, that are designed to keep an eye on inflammation and tamp it down when necessary. It seems that excess salt impairs TREGS inner motors to, or so that they don't have the energy to do their job and they increase your risk of autoimmune diseases. It makes you more vulnerable to infection and chronic pain. So, you can make something taste great without salt? Absolutely you can. Ditch prepared foods, processed meats, snacks. Instead, flavor your favorite dishes with fresh herbs like basil and rosemary. Use garlic and leeks and onions. Experiment with sweets and hot peppers and chilies. Enjoy ground nuts and make healthy sauces such as marinara and pesto. Check out the tasty recipes in the What to Eat When cookbook. Uh, if you have a topic for Dr. Mike, you can uh, cover that in a future column if you'd like. So if please, if you want to, you can send an email to questions at greatagereboot.com. Dot com. All right, we are coming up to the uh, half, uh, half hour part of our program here today. And I would like to remind you that you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. And I am your host, Peter Welch. And um, we are reading from the Telegraph Herald today for Wednesday, the 8th of March. All right. Um, we do not have any obituary news here today, so we're just going to go right on ahead here and turn to the next column, which is lifestyle. And this about is always about food. And if you are a regular listener of this program, you know I love to talk about food recipes. Um, it's hard to believe, but can you believe that St. Patrick's Day is rapidly approaching? And it is. It's, it's already, hey, look at this, folks. We're already rapidly approaching uh, the middle of the month. We're getting there. Anyway, here is a recipe for shepherd's pie, which is perfect for St. Patrick's Day. Around this time of year with St. Patty's Day coming up, shepherd's pie comes to mind. The pie has a savory meat filling topped with mashed potatoes and cheese. It's usually made with lamb or ground lamb, but it's also made with ground beef and then called cottage pie. 
there's always a discussion whether the pies are Irish or English, and the answer is both. Either way, enjoy this quick dinner. I use 95% lean ground beef. If you prefer lamb, ask the butcher for lamb cubes cut from the leg and cut these into half-inch cubes. And by the way, this has been written by Linda Grassenheimer, who's a contributor to the Tribune News Service. To shorten making the mashed potatoes toppings, I cook the potatoes in the microwave, mash them in a food processor. It saves time and an extra pot to wash. If you don't have access to a microwave, add the potatoes to a saucepan of cold water, cover with a lid, and boil 10 to 15 minutes until they are soft. And here's some helpful hints. You can use six cloves of garlic instead of minced garlic. You can use any type of shredded cheese. The recipe calls for a small amount of tomato paste. Freeze any extra for another meal. Shepherd's pie, as I said, is usually made with lamb or ground uh, lamb, but you know it, it can be made with ground beef. Now, here's the countdown. You've got your microwave potatoes. You prepare the remaining ingredients. You make the filling, and while the filling cooks, you mash the potatoes. Here is your shopping list. You ready? Hope you got your pen and paper here to write this down. To buy three quarters of a pound of 95% lean ground beef, three quarters of a pound of russet or Idaho potatoes, one package of frozen diced or, or, or chopped onion, one container reduced sodium chicken broth, one jar of minced garlic, one small can of tomato paste, one bottle of Worcester sauce, Worcester, excuse me, Worcestershire, <laughs> sorry about that, one bottle of Worcestershire sauce, one package of shredded sharp cheddar cheese. So you see, it's not that big a deal. Now, here's what you do. Your staples are olive oil, flour, salt, and black pepper. Shepherd's pie. Here's what you get for servings for two. You get three quarters of a pound of russet Idaho potatoes, two tablespoons of, two tablespoons of water, one tablespoon of olive oil, salt and pepper, for, you know, ground pepper if you can, to taste, two cups of frozen chopped or diced onion, one cup of fat-free sodium Reduced sodium chicken broth, four teaspoons of minced garlic, three quarters of a pound of 95% lean ground beef, one or tablespoon, excuse me, one tablespoon of flour, four tablespoons of tomato paste, two tablespoons chopped fresh rosemary or, tea or two teaspoons dried. Get three teaspoons, <laughs> sorry folks, three tablespoons of Worcestershire sauce. And then you get one quarter of shredded sharp cheddar cheese, one ounce. Okay, what you do is you prepare or preheat the broiler. You wash the potatoes, do not peel. Cut into one inch pieces. Place in a large microwave safe bowl. Add the water and cover the bowl with a plate or plastic wrap. Microwave on high for five minutes. Remove from the microwave. Let it sit without removing the cover while preparing the remaining ingredients. Mash the potatoes in a food processor or with a potato ricer or sieve. Mix with olive oil and salt and pepper to taste. Set aside. Heat an 8 to 9 inch skillet that can go from stovetop to broiler over medium high heat. Add the onion and 1 tablespoon of chicken broth. Saute until the onions are soft and golden. 
five minutes. Add more chicken broth if pan becomes dry. Add the garlic and the ground beef. Break up beef with the edge of a spoon and saute one minute. Sprinkle the flour over the top. Add the remaining chicken broth, tomato paste, and rosemary. Mix well. Simmer four to five minutes, stirring occasionally until the sauce thickens. Add the Worcestershire and salt and pepper to taste. Taste for seasoning, adding more Worcestershire if needed. Spread mashed potatoes on top and sprinkle with cheese. Place under the heated broiler for two to three minutes or until the cheese melts. Oh, man. Boy, does that ever sound good. Yum, yum. You want more? I kind of figured you did. Here's another one. Hooked on salmon, fried rice, and veggies. And that's a healthy meal for you, I got to tell you. It's Lent, which means that many are going to be eating a lot of fish thanks to Friday night fish fries. And excuse me again, I should tell you this is written by Gretchen McKay of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. If you'd rather avoid the crowds and prepare seafood at home, consider a quick and easy stir-fry. Simple and satisfying, this colorful rice dish stars salmon, a heart-healthy fish you don't often find at church fish fries. It includes lots of fresh, crunchy veggies to make it more healthful. One reason this dish works so well, besides being dairy and gluten-free, is because it's customizable. If you don't like the salmon, substitute it for a pound of peeled and deveined medium shrimp. The same with the veggies. Use whatever is languishing in your crisper and garlic, which some, or at least for me, can't get enough of, and other steer clear to avoid heartburn and bad breath. So don't worry about using day-old rice. It actually crisps up better than freshly made rice because the dry grains remain separate and absorb more seasoning. I made the dish with brown rice since it's more nutritious and removes the skin from the fish. All right, you're ready for the ingredients? Okay, here it is. Salmon fried rice. Number one, you've got one pound of skinless salmon cut into bite-sized chunks, salt and freshly ground black pepper, four tablespoons of grapeseed or canola oil divided, two large eggs whisked, one half a cup of thinly sliced green onion, two medium carrots, finely chopped, about a half a cup, one cup of broccoli florets, cut into small pieces, one half of red bell pepper, cut into small pieces, one or two garlic cloves, minced, two cups of cold cooked white or brown rice, toasted sesame seeds, or everything bagel seasoning for garnish, a handful of chopped cilantro for garnish, uh, pickled ginger for serving, and gluten-free soy sauce or tamari for serving. Now, if the salmon is refrigerated, remove it from the fridge 15 minutes prior to cooking it. Season with salt and pepper. Heat one tablespoon oil in a wok or a deep saute pan over medium-high heat. When the oil is hot, Add the cubed salmon and let it brown on opposite sides until opaque or flaky Four to five minutes. Don't overcrowd the pan. You might need to cook fish in batches. Once the salmon is done, transfer to a plate. Remove the pan from the heat 
Wipe out with a paper towel, removing any burnt bits. Place the pan back over the medium-high heat and add two tablespoons of remaining oil. When the fish is hot, stir in the eggs. When the eggs are finished cooking, about one minute transfer to a plate. Keeping the pan over medium or medium-high heat, add green onion, carrots, snow peas, red pepper. Cook for about a minute until the veggies are crisp tender. Add the garlic and stir-fry another 30 seconds until fragrant. Add one tablespoon of oil to the pan and then the cooked rice, stirring constantly to combine the veggies and the garlic with the rice. When the rice is hot, add the eggs back to pan and break them up with a spatula to combine with the rice. Remove the pan from the heat and gently fold in the salmon. Transfer the fried rice to a platter or individual plates and garnish with toasted sesame seeds and chopped cilantro. Served with pickled ginger and tamari or soy sauce. Oh boy. You know, I love reading this, but on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand I don't because I start foaming at the mouth with all these delicious meals. Um, and so I love, this is my favorite part of the reading. Um, when I'm with you guys talking to you about all these things. Okay, we need to move on here. Let's take a look now at the next section of the paper. We're going to be looking now at the record and nation and the world. Biden proposes new taxes on wealthy to bolster depleted Medicare program. The president has started to unveil parts of his budget proposal that will be released on Thursday. In Washington, President Joe Biden on Tuesday proposed new taxes on the rich to help fund Medicare, saying that the plan would help to extend the insurance program's solvency by 25 years and provide a degree of middle-class stability to millions of older adults. In his plan, Biden is overtly declaring that the wealthy ought to shoulder a heavier tax burden. His budget would draw a direct line between those new taxes and the popular health insurance program for people older than 65, essentially asking those who fared best in the economy to subsidize the rest of the population. Biden wants to increase the Medicare tax rate from 3.8% to 5% on income exceeding $400,000 per year, including salaries and capital gains. The White House did not provide specific cost-saving estimates with the proposal, but the move would likely increase tax revenues by more than $117 billion over 10 years, according to the prior estimates in February by the Tax Policy Center. This modest increase in Medicare contributions from those with the highest incomes will help keep the Medicare program strong for decades to come. Biden wrote into, on Tuesday in an essay in the New York Times, he called Medicare a rock-solid guarantee that Americans have counted on to be there for them when they retire. Senator Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican of Kentucky, was quick to dismiss the plan, telling reporters on Tuesday that Biden's budget agenda will not see the light of day. More than 65 million people rely on Medicare at a cost to taxpayers of roughly $900 billion every year. The number of Medicare enrollees is expected to continue growing as the U.S. population ages, but funding for the program is a problem, with federal officials warning 
that without cuts or tax increases, the Medicare fund might only be able to pay for 90% of its benefits by 2028. Biden suggested Medicare changes are part of a fuller budget proposal that he plans to release on Thursday in Philadelphia. Pushing the proposal through Congress will likely be difficult with Republicans in control of the House and the Democrats holding a slim majority in the Senate. The proposal is a direct challenge to GOP lawmakers who argue that economic growth comes from tax cuts like those pushed through the former President Donald Trump's in, in 2017. Those cuts disproportionately favored wealthier households and companies. They contributed to higher budget deficits when growth failed to boom, as Trump had promised uh, the, uh, for the economy, was then derailed in 2020 by the coronavirus pandemic. The conflicting worldviews on how taxes would impact the economy is part of a broader slowdown. But in Congress need to reach a deal to raise the government's borrowing authority at some point this summer, or else the government could default and plunge the U.S. into a debilitating recession. Ahead of an expected budget feud in the 2024 campaign season, Democrats have ramped up talk around Medicare, vowing to fend off any Republican attempts to cut the program, although so far the GOP has vowed to avoid any cuts. Still, Republican lawmakers have reached little consensus on how to fulfill their promise to put the government on a path toward balancing the federal budget in the next 10 years. Okay, let's take a look now. We're going to look at some area news in brief. Police, one hurt in two-vehicle crash in Dubuque. Police said that one person was injured in a two-vehicle crash Monday in Dubuque. Travis D. Leak, age 34, of Dubuque, was transported by private vehicle to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center for treatment of his injuries, according to Dubuque police. Police said that the vehicle driven by Caitlin L. Slats, age 31, of Dubuque, and Leek were traveling east on Ashbury Road at 2.37 p.m. and slowing for the, for the red light at the intersection with Northwest Art, Art, Arterial when Slat's cell, cell phone dropped from her lap and bounced behind the brake pedal. Leek and Slat's were both braking for the red light, but the phone partially blocked the pedal, and Slat's vehicle struck the rear of Leek's vehicle. Slats was cited with failure to maintain control. Block, blockage causes sewer overflow at Dubuque intersection. A blocked sanitary sewer line caused about 75 gallons of untreated wastewater to overflow onto the street at Dubuque intersection on Tuesday morning. The city's public works department was notified around 8 a.m. Tuesday of the overflow of the intersection of Stafford and Edison streets. A press release states the blockage caused the overflow was cleared by 9 a.m. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources recommends that residents keep their children and pets away from the area for 48 hours following the incident. All right, let's take a look here. A judge strikes down Missouri gun laws as unconstitutional. And this is Jefferson, Jefferson City, Missouri. Missouri law banning local police from enforcing federal gun laws is unconstitutional and void, a federal judge ruled on Tuesday. 
U.S. District Judge Brian Wimes ruled that the 2021 law is preempted by the federal government under the U.S. Constitution's Supreme Supremacy Clause. At best, the statute causes confusion among state law enforcement officials who are deputized for federal task force operations and, at worst, is unconstitutional on its face, Wimes wrote. Missouri Republican Attorney General Andrew Bailey, in a statement, said he will appeal the ruling. As Attorney General, I will protect the Constitution, which includes defending Missourians' fundamental right to bear arms. We're prepared to defend the statute to the highest court, and we anticipate a better result at the Eighth Circuit. The Missouri law had subjected law enforcement agencies with officers who knowingly enforced federal gun laws without equivalent state laws to a fine of $50,000 per violating officer. Conflict over Missouri's law wrecked a crime-fighting partnership with U.S. attorneys that Missouri's former Republicans and Attorney General, now Senator Eric Schmidt, touted for years. Under Schmidt's Safe Streets initiative, attorneys from his office were deputized as assistant U.S. attorneys to help prosecute violent crimes. The Justice Department, which last year sued to overturn the Missouri law, said that the Missouri State Crime Lab, operated by the Highway Patrol, refused to process evidence that would help federal firearms prosecutions after the law took effect. The Missouri Information and Analysis Center, also under the Highway Patrol, stopped cooperating with federal agencies investigating federal firearms offenses. And the Highway Patrol, along with many other agencies, suspended joint efforts to enforce federal firearm laws. Wimes said that the police can now work with federal partners without worrying about breaking the voided law. State and local law enforcement officials in Missouri may lawfully participate in joint federal task office, for, uh, forces, I should say, assist in, in participating to joint federal task forces, assist in the investigation and enforcement of federal firearm crimes, and fully share information with the federal government without the fear of HB 85's penalties, the judge wrote. Several Missouri prosecutors had testified against the bill saying it jeopardized investigations and prosecutions against serious offenders while exposing state and local off officers to civil liability. Republican lawmakers who helped pass the bill said that they were motivated by the potential for new gun restrictions under Democratic President Joe Biden, who signed the most sweeping gun violence bill in decades last year. The federal legislation toughened background checks for the youngest gun buyers, keeps firearms from more domestic violence offenders, and helps states put in place red flag laws that make it easier for authorities to take weapons from people judged to be dangerous. All right, let's now continue here with the nation and the world news here. Let's take a look at Texas executes man for killing wife and daughter. In Huntsville, Texas, a Texas inmate convicted of fatally stabbing his estranged wife and drowning her six-year-old daughter in a bathtub nearly 14 years ago was executed on Tuesday. Gary Green, age 51, received a lethal injection at the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. He was condemned for the September 2009 deaths of Lovetta Armstead, age 32, 
and her daughter, Jasmine Montgomery, at their home in Dallas. Green's attorneys did not file any appeals seeking to stop the execution. Ray Montgomery, who is a Jasmine's father, said recently that he wasn't cheering for Green's execution, but saw it as the justice system at work. It's justice for the way my daughter was tortured. It's justice for the way that Lovetta was murdered, said Montgomery, age 43. In prior appeals, Green's attorneys had claimed that he was intellectually, intellectually disabled and had a lifelong history of psychotic disorders. Oklahomans say no to recreational marijuana. In Oklahoma City, Oklahoma voters rejected a state question Tuesday to allow for the recreational use of marijuana following a late blitz of opposition from faith leaders, law enforcement, and prosecutors. Oklahoma would have become the 22nd state to legalize adult use of cannabis and join conservative states like Montana and Missouri that have approved similar proposals in recent years. Many conservative states have also rejected the idea, including Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota last year. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt and many of the state's GOP legislators, including nearly every Republican senator, opposed the idea. Former Republican Governor Frank Keating, an ex-FBI agent, and Terry White, the former head of the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, led the No campaign. We're pleased that the voters have spoken, said Pat McFerrin, a Republican political strategist who ran the opposition campaign. We think this sends a clear signal that voters are not happy with the recreational nature of our medicinal medical system. We also think it shows voters organizing and recognizing the criminal aspects as well as the need for addressing mental health needs of the state. The no side was outspent more than 20 to 1. The supporters of the initiative spending more than $4.9 million compared to about $219,000 against last-minute campaign finance reports show. State question 820, the result of a uh, signature gathering drive last year, was the only item on the statewide ballot, and early results showed heavy opposition in rural areas. And briefly, in Washington, a military veteran accused of telling an undercover FBI agent about a plan to wipe out the nation's Jewish population was convicted on Tuesday of storming the U.S. Capitol to stop Congress from certifying President Joe Biden's 2020 electoral victory. And that does it here for the reading of the Telegraph Herald for, uh, for um, Wednesday, the 8th of March. I am your reader. Peter Welch, and you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Thank you for listening, and please be careful because we do have winter weather coming. Uh, probably be best to just to stay home starting tomorrow until it all goes away. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye now.